0: good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you over EWTN radio, and we're broadcasting from the offices of the Coming Home Network International near Zanesville, Ohio. Thank you for joining us on this program. Each week, we take a moment to look into Scripture, and the guests that I invite to join me, I've invited them to share with us verses that they never saw, verses that brought them into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ in his church. And sometimes these particular scripture references are verses they were aware of, but they either did not see clearly what the uh, verses were saying because of the tradition in which they were coming from, or they interpreted them a completely different way, again, because of that former tradition. Or sometimes either are verses that they just never noticed and so they'll share these verses uh, with us. And our hope is that you, as you listen to this, it'll be encouragement to your own faith to read Scripture, to uh, use Scripture, again, as a, as a means of hearing God's message to you and drawing you closer to God. But if you have any questions of anything that we are discussing, we'd love for you to contact us. So if you would, if you have a question for today's guest, please give us a call. The phone number is 800 800- Six six four five one one zero, or the regular coming home network phone number seven four oh four five zero one one seven five or you can send an email to Marcus M A R C U S at deepinscripture.com Now our guest for today now this is Ash Wednesday so it's a very unique day for us to to gather on the on the radio because I know that a lot of you listening who are not uh, Catholics, uh, Ash Wednesday may, may mean nothing to you whatsoever, but for us Catholics, it's a very significant day for it kicks off our Lenten uh, time of devotion, of self examination as we prepare ourselves for the coming of Easter, uh, getting ready for the great sacrifice of Christ for our salvation. Uh, so I've invited to join us on Ash Wednesday a good friend, Kevin O'Brien. Kevin has joined me on the Journey Home program twice, if I remember, once as himself and secondly as St. Paul. Kevin is an actor and he's a fine actor and it's a great privilege to have him as a friend. He's the founder and artistic director of the Theater of the Word Incorporated, a Catholic theater company which tours the country evangelizing through drama. And uh, I'm reading to you his bio that's on the deepinscripture.com website. Although Kevin was an atheist at an early age, his experience with the dramatic arts began a conversion process that, with the help of the writings of G.K. Chesterton, eventually brought him into the Catholic Church. And that's something I'm going to, as you're hearing me, Kevin, That's something I want you to talk about because often the assumption is that getting involved in the dramatic arts actually undercuts and challenges our Christian faith. Let's talk about that when you come online in a moment. Kevin hosts the television series, The Theater of the Word on EWTN, and can also be seen as on episodes of EWTN's The Apostle of Common Sense and The Quest for Shakespeare. Most recently, Kevin has appeared in two movies, Man Alive, based on the novel by G.K. Chesterton, and Another movie entitled To Follow the Light, The Conversion of John Henry Newman. Both of these are to be released this year. In addition, Kevin performs dramatic readings of audiobooks for Ignatius Press and is the only person in history to play every part in a Shakespeare play, which he did for his audio reading of The Merchant of Venice for Ignatius Press, the Ignatius Critical Edition. He's also a writer and frequent contributor to the St. Austin Review and Gilbert magazine. Kevin's been on EWTN, as I mentioned, uh, as well as his troupe. And if you want to know more about his work, there's a link to his website, Theater of the Word Incorporated, on the deepinscripture.com webpage. And lest I forget to mention, if you go to the webpage, you can also watch this program live on the internet. Now, Kevin chose for the verses for him to focus on today, a bunch of them. I chose a fistful of verses, but I've got four of them referenced on the internet. I'd like to read those, and then we'll take a break, and Kevin will join us. The first reading is from 1 Samuel 26, 18. And he said, "'Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? "'For what have I done? "'What guilt is on my hands?' And then two readings from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7, and then chapter 9, verse 16. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And then chapter 9. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And then finally a reading from Romans chapter 6. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the return you get is sanctification and its end eternal life. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com.
1: If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journey's Home, Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodyte's book, Journey's Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110.
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And uh, I'm joined today by Kevin O'Brien. And uh, Kevin, you're coming to us from St. Louis. Is that right? That's
2: right, Marcus. How you
0: doing? Well, I'm doing great. It's great to be talking to you over the phone. Yes, indeed. Um, and uh, it's a uh, uh, again, I've got so many things I'd love to talk to you about in this hour. Uh, one of which um, I, I mentioned in the uh, opening. Uh, if just to let the audience know, if you want to hear Kevin's entire conversion story, he appeared on the Journey Home program, and and uh, and you can probably email. Kevin at the Theater of the Word Incorporated website, but you mentioned in your journey that it was, in fact, through the dramatic arts that you came from atheism into Christianity and then the Catholic Church.
2: Yes, that's right.
0: Talk about that. I mean, how is that? That seems contrary to what we think today when we think about Hollywood
2: Well, it's certainly contrary in many ways, because most actors are very secular people. In fact, they tend to be super pagans in many ways, and you really don't get a sense of any Christian uh, respect in the acting community. But I will tell you that actors are devotional people. They're very much devoted to their craft, and they have a sense that what we are doing as actors on stage is what I would call uh, a clerical function. Uh, In many ways, drama is analogous to the liturgy in that you have um, people in costume who are following scripts with stage directions or rubrics in an attempt to recreate dramatically uh, an experience that brings the audience into a communion with something that is beyond themselves. And of course, uh, drama isn't, isn't the liturgy and really can't be compared to it, but there is an analogy there through that, and also through the challenge of opening myself up to the creative process, that's what began to bring me out of the confines of atheism. Because I found that on stage, uh, no matter how well prepared I was for a performance, no matter how well I knew my lines, or had researched the character, or understood my blocking and the director's intentions, nevertheless, I had to open myself up to an inspiration from some sort of creative source, which uh, at the time I thought was uh, just sort of a vague creative spirit, but at any rate I knew that it was beyond me, and that I couldn't make a performance interesting. I could only do the work and then hope that something else Mm -hmm. would take over or inspire me or inspire my fellow actors, and then actually give that sense to a performance where things start to click and it becomes interesting and the audience gets engaged. So the constant frustration of knowing I couldn't make this happen through Mm -hmm. my own efforts is one of the things that humbled me from my position of atheism and then, through a long, long process, eventually brought me into the Church. It, it, it,
0: It seems that there, even when you were an atheist or at least an agnostic, whatever stage, you had a sense in which your uh, your art, your particular art, was all about communicating to your audience. And it's interesting that you compare the theater with liturgy. You know, I used to be a Protestant minister, and um, there's the constant danger, temptation, for the priest, the minister, and the actor to forget that it's not about them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, if a priest is tempted and is caught up in his front position centrality then then he can forget what it's all about same thing with a protestant minister same thing with an actor
2: yes exactly it It is about something beyond us, and priests function as a kind of bridge between the congregation and the Lord, or an experience of the Lord. And, of course, it's possible for us to have these experiences without the help of priests, and it's possible for us to have um, experiences of great literature without the help of actors. Nevertheless... Um, actors certainly serve as facilitators to bring people to that experience. It's very tempting as an actor to think it's all about you, because this culture in particular idolizes actors and worships them in a way that has never really happened before in the history of civilization. And so the temptations abound, and many people, I think, go into acting because of the issues that we've got as actors and the hope that we will find um, attention at the very least, maybe <laughs> adulation at the most. Um, but that's something that I think um, everyone has to fight against, uh, uh, at least in show business. And uh, you're right; it's it's certainly there, and it's certainly something that that can be
0: tempting. Well, just being a host on EWTN, <laughs> you know, sometimes you know, you and I both were out and around, and someone was they've seen us on EWTN, and and uh, they miss the point sometimes that it isn't about us. Yes, that's that's
2: right. In fact, we have a phrase for that here. Uh, We say that um, there are certain people that are EWTN rock stars. And if you're an EWTN rock star man, they'll flock to your merchandise table. But again, as you say, that's really not what it's about. EWTN knows that, and I think the hosts do, too. We're trying to bring people to something greater than than ourselves.
0: I think particularly when you're, like in my position as a host, even when I do each program like I'm doing right now, it's not about me. If it ever gets that way, then I've missed the entire point of this program. If anything, this program is about you, Kevin. In other words, me encouraging you, turning the focus away from me to you. And what I was thinking though, is that there isn't a unique position that actors do that is uniquely different than a priest or a minister because uh, that makes an actor a bit more like an icon or a statue and here's what i'm saying is that a priest when he does the eucharist when he celebrates the liturgy he is in persona christi but he's not trying to act it out right he's not trying to pretend like we're seeing jesus do the lord's supper 2000 years ago we're not supposed to think that right when we but an actor like when you played paul or when you're going to play what's the name of the guy you're going to you're gonna. I'm gonna interview you in about a month and a half, right?
2: Right. I'll be blessed, Dominic Barberi.
0: Okay, we're gonna do that. Now, you want us to see beyond you to the person you're emulating. That's like what an icon is. Yeah. We don't worship the icon, but it draws us through that icon, that picture, that statue, to the real that it represents and points to.
2: Yes, that's right, and um, I think that, um, that that that's that's something you sometimes see at liturgies. You will sometimes see lectors get up and read a little too dramatically yeah. instead of just reading well to be understood. They'll try to act it out a bit. I think that's a mistake yeah. in in a liturgy, uh, and I certainly think drama has its role in in the church and in in. Portraying uh, saints and uh, salvation history in a dramatic and engaging way, but I agree with you. It's, it's really not appropriate for the liturgy, yeah. and, and that's probably because it's so much more important. The liturgy is much more important yeah. than anything we can do dramatically, so we really do want to make sure that we don't become the focus as performers or lectors or priests or ministers in any significant way.
0: But, but I do think when you, and I agree with you, when you do like St. Paul, or you do a figure like that, that key temptation of the actor is to feel the emulation and the attention when really what you're doing is you're trying to help the audience have an experience of St. Paul, it, You know, to, to feel like they're in the presence of St. Paul so that they can appreciate what St. Paul was trying to get across through you, not even noticing you, seeing St. Paul? I mean, that to me... Now, is that... What was that called? The method in New York in, in the actor's studio? Is that kind of what they were trying to get, trying to learn how to do?
2: Well, n- no, not really. I mean, I, th- I think that's just a, a general description of any good acting. But I will say, being an actor myself and having known so many of them, there's there's no way with our fallen human nature that we can completely... Uh, efface that selfishness and there's always uh, a little temptation and a little hint of wanting to be a star especially this day and age and it's something especially during Lent that actors should try to mortify and turn away (laughs) from Uh, but to be honest we all harbor these these fantasies of being on a, uh, a TV show, being a huge hit, being a movie star, having people throw themselves at you. I mean you can't get away from being impressed with that as a as a fallen human being, and yet we have to continually remind ourselves that that really isn't what it's all about. In fact, that's a trap. And I've known enough actors who have made it big, and it really is. It's kind of a cliche. But I will tell you, the actors I've known who have made it big in Hollywood, um, it it doesn't help them as people. Yeah. It it really tends to hurt more than anything else, and it certainly doesn't help their spirituality, and it certainly doesn't bring the kind of contentment or happiness that they thought it would. It brings a whole new set of insecurities and, and uh, issues that mm-hmm. you thought might be solved by your stardom. And, and I've just seen enough of that to know that that really is a trap to go down that road. We always have to remind ourselves, as you say, we are here to connect people with something great. Not to focus on ourselves.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, the the verses you chose. Thank you, Kevin. The the verses you sh- you chose. Uh, first Samuel verse, uh, the two from First Corinthians, and then the Roman passage. Maybe first in general. What? Why were these verses important to you?
2: Well, actually, they all have to do with St. Paul. Even okay. that first one from the Old Testament. And mm-hmm. I will say that. I've always been fascinated by Paul, and when we started the Theater of the Word, I decided that we needed to do a show on St. Paul. This was before the Pauline year Mm -hmm. in the Catholic Church, which was last year. And at first, I thought, well, maybe I could find a good one-man script out there, a one-man show as Paul, because that's always cheaper to Mm -hmm. mount from the production point of view. And the one script, uh, I I had somebody I found who had written a one-man Paul show, and he sent me the first page of the script, and Paul was in prison, and he was talking to the audience, and he was complaining about, more or less, how he was just a nice guy, and he was misunderstood. And, gee, golly gee, why can't we all get along? And I thought, wait a minute, this isn't Paul. Paul had to be in people's faces. When you read his epistles, half the time he's apologizing for having offended the people he's writing to, <laughs> and he's begging with them to understand that he really loves them, he's doing this for their best, and so forth and so on. So I thought, here's a man filled with zeal. That's the one character he had both before and after his conversion. Great zeal for the Lord. And people like that are difficult people to be around. And I thought, we've got to present Paul more or less in your face. We've got to show a character on stage who stirs people up, because that's what Paul must have done, or he would not have been as effective as he was in establishing many of the early churches, and he would not have been as persecuted as he was. So... so. These verses tie into many of the things I learned from portraying St. Paul and from studying him because I thought I knew him pretty well until I started to do him on stage and then more and more about him opened up to me.
0: I will tell the audience uh, that I'm sure if you went to EWTN.com and you went to Journey Home you could and did a search, you could find that old interview that uh, Kevin and I did when I interviewed St. Paul. And uh, one of the inside Scoops on that interview Kevin right was right. we had a script and uh, you know I had a question and then you had an answer and we had gone through a little bit and it was all scripted but it got to the point where actually you had so convinced me that I was sitting with Saint Paul that I there there's this question I had to answer if Saint Paul were there so I asked it of you away from the script and uh, from my standpoint I, I I felt completely free to do that because you had so done a fine job convincingly that you were expressing Paul. I really felt you could give Paul's opinion.
2: Well, that was a great compliment. Thank you, Marcus. Although it was at the same time terrifying. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> we were doing it live.
2: <laughs> yes.
0: Oh, well. Um, Kevin, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, let's look at that First Samuel passage and uh, and let's see how, from your journey, how you saw that connected with Paul. We'll be back in a moment. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grode. I'm joined today by Kevin O'Brien, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Next time on EWTN Live, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the central act of worship of the Church and the unbloody representation of Christ's death on the cross. Tune in when Father Mitch talks with Father Oscar Lucafar about the Catholic Mass. That's on the next EWTN Live.
1: EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Follow the compelling journey of one man who became a Church of Christ minister and found himself entering the Catholic Church. Bruce Sullivan shares his conversion story in his new book titled, Christ in His Fullness. In this book, he communicates a passionate love for Christ and the inexhaustible treasures of grace found in the Catholic Church. Perhaps you, too, will discover the same riches in the fullness of Christ. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or call us at 1-800-664-5110.
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Kevin O'Brien. Before we get back into the dialogue, I'd like to uh, just mention again on deepinscripture.com website, you can connect with all the information you need to know about the Coming Home Network International, what we do, there's a great variety of things you can get on the website, including you can click on a link and subscribe to Deep in Scripture CD Club, in which if you sign up for that, you will receive um, every program directly by whatever medium you want, MP3. Uh, you can click to that on the website to find out more about it. All right, Kevin, let's look at that First Samuel passage, mm-hmm. 26 18 where the author says and he said why does my lord pursue after his servant for what have i done what guilt is on my hands how does that connect with saint paul
2: well in this particular case you've got uh david who has been pursued by saul the first king of 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 israel and um saul has gotten an irrational hatred of david a jealousy of him David's been living in caves, David's been uh, scampering about, he has a small band of followers, he's being persecuted actively by Saul, who's been trying to kill him for quite some time now, and David has been writing these psalms in the midst of his, his, his persecution. And finally there comes a point where um, David spares the life of Saul in a, in, a, uh, in a moment where Saul and his companions are asleep in their tents. David goes on top of a hill, a far away off, and he calls out to the camp uh, of of Saul and Saul's followers, and he says, uh, Saul wakes up, and he says, is this thy voice, David, my son? And he says, it is me, my lord, the king. Why do you pursue me? Why are you coming after me? What have I done? What evil is there in me that you are trying to oppose? Saul then feels bad, and repents, and converts, and comes out of his madness. He's been in a kind of madness of jealousy, and he says, I've done foolishly, and I've been very ignorant in many things. Go thy way, David, my son. May you be blessed, and so forth. Now, a thousand years later, we have another Saul, a Benjaminite, probably named after King Saul, who is also filled with, with a jealousy and a kind of madness Mm -hmm. against the son of david saul later paul is persecuting uh, the true david or the ultimate david Mm -hmm. jesus christ and as saul tells us in Acts and in many places. He persecuted the Church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Uh, He he, went into many cities, throwing people into prison, trying to get them to um, renounce their faith. So Paul became, uh, Paul or Saul at that (laughs) time, became like King Saul a thousand years earlier. And at Saul's conversion... And this, he talks about his conversion many times in the New Testament, that at least three times it's mentioned in the book of Acts. And each time when Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus is described, Paul is knocked down, he sees the blinding light, and he hears the voice, and the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What have I done to you? In so many words... Mm -hmm. And it really is a recapitulation of what happened between King Saul and David. So Saul, as King Saul before him, repents. Now, King Saul before him, the repentance didn't stick. Nope. Uh, King Saul was much more fallible and, in many ways, a lot more human and understandable, I think, because he many at many times had very good intentions, but he just couldn't quite follow through and really stick with his repentance. Saul, later Paul, on the other hand, does in fact, that's his moment, that's his conversion, and he then cooperates with God's grace and turns around, and this is a perfect day to talk about this on Ash Wednesday, turns around from his former life of sin, from this sin that consumed him. And, you know, those of us who remember President Nixon can emphasize with King Saul, because King Saul in the Old Testament goes through kind of a Nixon-esque experience where he really comes to a point where he thinks everyone's against him, (laughs) and he is so paranoid and so driven to get even with his enemies that he loses it. But that's what jealousy does, and that's what yeah. sin does to you. It eventually brings you to a point of madness, a point of imprisonment to your own um, to, to your own sins and your own flaws. So that's why that verse, which I never saw, I always knew both stories, mm-hmm. but it was only after doing St. Paul on stage quite a bit that I saw how it echoed something that had happened in the Old Testament so long prior.
0: You know, I remember that... Um, how often, when I was a Protestant minister, in interpreting Scripture on my own, I believe that that's what we were to do—solo Scripture, guided by the Spirit. And I remember um, struggling with the the verse uh, where Jesus quotes from the cross. Uh, you know, Father, where are you? You know, mm-hmm. that uh, why have you forsaken me? Yes. Okay. And I remember, you know, people getting caught up in trying to explain how it is that the Son of God would feel separated from God the Father. You know, all of a sudden, do we have a breakdown in communication within the Trinity? Mm-hmm. And get caught up in all that thing without recognizing that, in fact, Jesus is quoting a psalm. Mm-hmm. He is quoting the opening words to a psalm, Psalm 22, verse 2, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing that, Jesus is bringing to the memory of his audience the entire messianic prophecy of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. Now, Kevin, is that what God was doing with Paul with this connection with the Old Testament at that moment. See what I'm saying?
2: Yes. Yes, it it certainly could have been. We don't hear Paul make that connection in any of his epistles, but knowing Scripture as he did, meaning the Old Testament, he must have sensed that connection, at least on some level. And imagine how crushing that must have been for him, mm-hmm. to recognize that he, Saul, was like the old Saul, and that this character he was pursuing, David says to King Saul, you have come out to, uh, to seek a flea, as if you were hunting a partridge in the mountains, <laughs> and suddenly uh, the Apostle must have recognized what he was doing. How wrong it was and how in effect, it was david it was david the the uh, truly anointed of the lord that he had been trying to persecute and crush so it must have it must have made the connection in paul's mind and even if it didn't that's the amazing thing about scripture it's there for us <laughs> and it's there for us to see how salvation history ties together in fact I wrote an article about this, uh, uh, and I don't even know where, where it appeared. But if you think about, say, mystery stories, let's imagine that somebody is writing a mystery story, and the writer dies or stops writing at some point before it's finished. And the publisher really wants this mystery story to be completed and published. So he gives it to another author, and he says, complete this. And the author says, well, there are so many loose ends, I don't know who done it. I don't know how to pull a solution off. But somehow the new author would be compelled to write a solution that was legitimate and that actually answered all of the loose ends and all of the clues that were lying about in the mystery he was given. In many ways, that's what the New Testament does. I'm not saying the New Testament is fiction and is written by a mystery author, but I'm saying there are things in the Old Testament that are loose ends, and that are clues, which are only completely answered and satisfactorily answered by the New Testament, so that um, even if people could make the case, oh, this is all a work of fiction, well, it's an astonishing work of fiction, because you have writers thousands of years... planting clues and planting seeds which don't really come to fruition and aren't really tied together in a solution for thousands of years later. So if it's a a work of fiction, it's the most incredible work of fiction that's ever been written.
0: But I think the, the connection you make between those two passages is exactly what you're saying, and the beauty of that, the question is, you know, given Christ's constant warning, you know, if you have ears, hear. Yes. Are you hearing this? It's kind of like when Jesus makes that statement from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People are all around wondering, you know, what's going on here? What does this mean? Is he a fraud? Even his disciples, you know, what, you know, what's going on now? Yes. You know, the guy we followed. And he gives them the clue. Right. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are they going to hear what he's saying? Or are they going to just get caught up in the words? Mm. He's, he's in despair. Or are they going to say, wait a second. Messiah. Mm-hmm. That's what he's pointing to. Mm-hmm. One other question on this First Samuel passage. In a way, what God was doing was using Paul's knowledge, his background, his, his training, his education to awaken within him the meaning of his conversion. Mm-hmm. God was using Paul's memory of this passage in the Old Testament. Let's let's assume that's what God was doing. Mm-hmm. Was so in other words, God had prepared Paul in the past through his training, his education, his memory, building the foundation so that later he could bring back to his memory and confront him that way. Yes. Ever happened to you, Kevin? Oh. <laughs> 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 yes, indeed.
2: All, all the time, things like that happen to me.
0: <laughs> you know, God does that with us. You know, He He. he He puts in our past things that he brings back to our memory and and maybe, I mean, maybe talk about that for just a second, Kevin, because here we are in Ash Wednesday. I mean, that's what Ash Wednesday and Lent's all about, is looking back and then getting on our knees and saying, Lord, I'm sorry.
2: Yes. And some of these things come back to haunt us. uh, But then again, there are other things where we say, what great grace that was in the past, because now I'm able to make use of it and cooperate with it. In some ways, that was The position paul was in on the road to damascus he must have felt mortified but at the same time he must have recognized the great grace god gave him before his conversion to understand the scriptures and the great grace of that moment of embarrassment and shame on the road to damascus because that's the grace that allows him truly to convert and so i look back and i see many things in my life that come up and i say Well, uh, God was preparing me. God was preparing me for theater of the Word, really. I did a lot of secular theater, a lot of um, dinner theater. Many things, uh, the talents that I learned in those days, I'm using now in, in a way that's much more keyed into His greater glory. So I think we've always got to look for that thread in our lives of how God prepares us, always when we don't deserve it is preparing us nonetheless, and then when we see that preparation and we see his grace in action, that's when we need to say, okay, I'm going to cooperate now and and, and and really try to get this right.
0: Yeah, it may have been, it's not recorded in Scripture, but it may have been that when Paul saw the connection, we're assuming he did, between Saul of old and and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the situation, and the question is, is, is Paul going to be different? Yes that maybe that was the first time ever uttered in the history of the world, probably in Latin, but for the grace of God go I.
2: Right, and in a way, in the same way that we see Mary as the new Eve, Mary gets the chance to unmake the mistake that Mary made mm-hmm. by saying yes to God instead of no, Saul has the chance to unmake the mistake of the very first king of Israel. He has a chance to say, I can become the new Saul and I can do this right, which is in fact what he does.
0: And I'm wondering, Kevin, if that's true, of course, in every one of our lives, because we see around us, whether in history or on the media, people who are in similar situations to we are, whose lives have been destroyed because of decisions they made. And we see that. We might be tempted to point a finger and say, ha, oh, look at that, look at that, look at that. Or do we say, whoa, but for the grace of God, go why? I. I mean, you see the lives of actors.
2: Yes. Yes, and it's a mess. I mean, their lives are a mess. And, um, you know, uh, I had a friend who was telling me about, she was so angry at her father, who had abandoned the family and who uh, uh, was shacking up with another woman, and then eventually he was even allowed to get a, uh, uh, an annulment and get married again in the church, and this infuriated her, and at the same time, she was very tempted herself to be promiscuous. She was a young actress, and I said, wait a minute, you have a chance to fix what suffering. your father did, you have a chance to make reparations by uh, taking his life, which is your life, and, and living it the right way, not with a sense of, well, I'm going to be perfect, and I'm going to get it right because I'm so good, but just seeing, yeah. seeing what sin can do to people, and seeing the pain it causes, and saying, okay, I can at least make this decision with my will, that I'm not going to do, I'm going to turn toward you, Lord, help me.
0: Yeah, you really couldn't have picked a better subject as we begin Lent, because mm. that's how we begin this reflection. We look not just at our own lives, but we also look around us and see examples of people like us who have failed. Our goal is not to point fingers or to think we're better than, but it's really a mea culpa, yes. mea culpa. Mm-hmm. Lord, uh, help me. Uh, you know, create me a clean heart. I mean, those are the the verses, the scriptures, Psalm 51, that link with the one you've chosen. How can I live up to God's calling? Not so that I'm better than others, but so that I can stand before God without embarrassment. Yes. Now you've also chosen 1 Corinthians 3, 7. Let me read that because this moves us into the New Testament. Paul wrote, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Talk about that one, Kevin. That's a great verse.
2: That is a great verse. Uh... I think it's very tempting in this day and age, especially if you're running a theater company, to think that somehow you've got to do it all. Um, God sometimes asks us to do things that, from a worldly point of view, are simply impossible. For example, starting a Catholic television network with $300 in your pocket. Um, (laughs) Who would have done that? Who would have done that? many things that god wants us to do if we look at it from a worldly point of view we really think it can't be done and then we make the mistake of thinking well okay god perhaps you have in fact asked me to do this but um i'm gonna have to somehow fake this or i'm gonna have to somehow work the system or i'm gonna have to somehow trick people or be clever or 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 i've got to make this happen because i'm in an impossible situation forgetting that God all nothing is impossible with God and and forgetting as well this verse in many ways tells us the solution to faith versus works which Protestants tend to say Paul is all about that and I don't think Paul is all about that right. in fact I think the more I the more I performed Paul the more I saw that the entire deposit of faith is there in Paul. Mm-hmm. He is vast. He, he contains multitudes. He's got really almost everything that the Church teaches can be found in his epistles. And this verse in particular says, okay, we've got work to do. I'm going to water, uh, or I'm going to plant. Apollo is going to water. You're going to do this. I'm going to do that. We all have our jobs to do. But the increase is going to come from God. That's certainly the case with an agricultural metaphor, which is what Paul's using. We can't make the plants grow. And if you're a salesman, you can't make the prospect say yes. You might... You might flatter yourself into thinking you can close the sale, but all you can do is present the prospect with the right information so that the prospect will make the decision. And in the same way, we can't, as theater of the word, get out there and convert people or evangelize through drama on our own efforts. Certainly we have to use our own efforts. But it's like what I said earlier, when you're on stage, you can do all the work, you can learn the lines, you can learn the blocking, you can research the character, you can be all set to go, but that increase has to happen. That moment of grace has to touch you, and if it doesn't, it will all be for naught, as is said elsewhere. If a man labors to build the house, but the builder is not really God, nothing will happen. If you try to win the battle and God is not on your side, you will not win. So... Yes, we have to work, but our work is only in cooperation with the grace of God. And if it's not, it's futile.
0: This verse has, I think, a unique um, angle to it that we have to be careful. And you mentioned a little an allusion to Mother Angelica a little bit ago, and I think if there's so many things which which we appreciate her for, and are thankful to her for, and one of them is there's there's no question in my mind that she truly and sincerely understood this verse, um, that, that gave her the complete courage to take a step out in faith, as you said, to build a network with hardly anything in the bank because she believed that's what God was calling her to do and she trusted God and she knew it wasn't about her. But the angle that if I, have taken, if I shift the focus to you now, Kevin, as an actor with your thing, it's one thing for me to point a finger at you and say, hey, Kevin, you got to remember that it's, it's just you planting our water. And it's really God doing it. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Dropping that bomb on you as if I'm above you, mm-hmm. as if I know better. Mm-hmm. And we got to be careful we don't do that to other people. Because mm-hmm. the point of this passage is not to point a finger at somebody else to remind them of this, but the point is that for ourselves... This attitude is something we have to have ourselves, not force on anyone else. It's got to be naturally by grace within us that I need to recognize that it's not me who plants. I mean, in other words, it's all that I do. Right. But even the planting is grace. Yeah.
2: Even the opportunity to water yeah.
0: is grace. It's all God.
2: Yes, and I think that can actually be a consolation for people rather than a way of condemning them or wagging the finger at them and saying that, you know, take a deep breath, don't worry about it. We all don't have to make everything happen on our own efforts.
0: It's where the spiritual life begins. The Beatitudes begin with blessed are the poor of spirit. It begins with detachment. It begins with recognizing that everything comes from God. And then we are vessels that can be used by him. Otherwise it becomes about us. Kevin, let's take another break. When we come back, I want you to tell me whether you want to do the first Corinthians nine passage or the Romans six passage. You'll let me know after the break. Okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Kevin O'Brien, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your Global Catholic Radio Network.
1: Please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at
0: 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Kevin O'Brien. Kevin, which of the verses would you like to, we can't do both of them, which one would you like to focus on?
2: Mm-hmm with Corinthians, but before we move on to that, Marcus, yeah. I want to say one more thing yep. about 1 Corinthians 3.7. Um, uh, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. I think one of the really sad things about the culture of death is that we don't want the growth. Hmm. We want to plant, we want to water, we want to do all that, but we don't want the increase. Hmm. We want to cut that off. We see that with contraception hmm. and abortion, We see that, I think, with young people. I know a lot of young actors who are glued to their iPods and their devices and their video games. They do everything they can to prevent themselves from conceiving an idea or from experiencing any natural growth that would come from God. Um, And I think that's another reason that verse is important, that uh, God wants the increase. He wants children. And what the birth control pill has done is it's put people in a position where they can say, we're going to wait to have children until it's a good time. Well, it's never a good time to have children. There's always a reason not to. You're always in debt. You're always too busy. There's always an issue. And it's the same thing with starting a theater company. I had thought about starting theater of the word for years, but it was never the right time. Suddenly, everything came together, and with the help help of uh, Father Joseph Fessio and Ignatius Press and Archbishop Burke uh, in St. Louis, they both helped us get this going, and then so suddenly I said, well, it never will be the right time, we might as well do it. I think we are so trained in this culture to say... We don't want the increase. We don't want anything new. We don't want new growth. It's all about us, and we want to be self-contained, and we want to turn in on ourselves that we really miss um, what this verse is about and what God really wants from us.
0: You know, this verse also, right with your saying, it very subtly expresses the partnership that we have with God in anything we do. When Jesus said in in, uh, John 15, apart from me you can do nothing, Well, there's a partnership. The first half of this, the one extreme is it's all about me and I'm going to do it and I'm going to make it happen and forgetting that God's there. The other extreme is God's going to do it. It's not me at all. Right. It's just God. When the truth is, no, no, no. We have a job to plant. We have a job to water. We recognize that even comes by grace, but still we've got to do it. When mother started EWTN, it didn't just happen. Right. She had to have the courage to take a step. You had to do the same With your group. Yes. And you had to trust that if there's going to be any growth, it was going to come, but it had to come through your efforts.
2: That's right. Yes. Very well said.
0: Let's, uh, we got a couple minutes. Let's grab this other verse. Otherwise, I'd like to keep talking uh, on the other topic. 916, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel.
2: I think all actors out there listening to us know this. Um, (laughs) If you don't appear on stage, if you don't do what you love, you're miserable. And I think actors have a real sense of vocation. Um, The vocation to act is, you might call it a sub-vocation, it's not to marriage or the priesthood, it's Mm -hmm. not a major vocation, but it is in fact a call from God. To do something, and you know, I have some actors. Uh, we have we have a few friends, and one of them we just saw not too long ago. And somebody said to me, "He used to act. Why isn't he still acting? He was so good." And I said, "The reason he's not acting anymore is he can live without it. <laughs> and if you can live without it, you live without it because you can't make any money doing this. <laughs> and you know, I mean, it's it's really a fairly foolish career path." And, um, I mean, there's going to be so many challenges. It's going to be so hard to maintain your integrity and do good, good work, much less work that isn't um, vile or pornographic. It's almost impossible, as I say. And yet actors know that if you have to do it, you have to do it. Now, a vocation isn't a compulsion, and God doesn't say, do this or else because then it really isn't a calling. Mm -hmm. It's just a calling or an invitation. But he places in our hearts this desire, this restlessness, which will not rest uh, except in him, so that we really can't be, we can't feel completely fulfilled, we really don't feel as if we're doing what we should be doing unless we somehow answer that call. So he has placed this desire in us, and I think that's one of the things Paul is saying. This comes in the midst of a very difficult passage where Paul is talking about being rewarded, and if you preach the gospel you should make your living from the gospel, but he renounces his right to that, and so he's using a variety of rhetorical techniques and I don't want to just pick this verse out sure. and make more of it than we should, but at the very least, at the very least, he is saying, if I don't preach the gospel after my conversion, after all these graces God has given me, after this zeal and this hunger that he has placed in my heart, I will experience a kind of woe or a kind of misery. I therefore am compelled to to be to follow the call and to be drawn to
0: God. You know, I, uh, I just want to say a lot of ministers know exactly what you're talking about, priests, if they sense that real call in preaching and, and homiletics. I know that when I became a Catholic, I, I felt that, that loss in a way of not having a pulpit. And then God, in his sense of humor, gave me the opportunity to be on EWTN. So, I mean, the pulpit is there. Kevin, you know what's also neat with this? Uh, I wish we were running out of time. I always thought of myself as a channel you know, as an actor, speaker, a channel of God's message. Yes. And then I read something by St. Benedict and says, we're not channels, we're reservoirs.
2: Ah, I like that. Does that
0: connect? In other words, what comes out has to come out of the depth of already a spiritual development.
2: That's right. And it has to come out of who we are and what we've done. We're not just puppets that the Holy Spirit brings to life, we're living people with free will who cooperate with God and therefore bring to bear in any work of art or in anything we do during the day uh, the combination of who we are and the grace that is at work within us.
0: Yeah, that old phrase, you can't give what you ain't got. You know, we're not just channels of whatever we are proclaiming just kind of flows through us without affecting us. It needs to affect us. Right. Needs to change us. And if we're not connected with spirituality, it can connect us and change us in the wrong way. And that's Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) You know, they're connected by the parts they're playing and and pretty soon they're caught up in things as opposed to being guided by the spirituality that should be there within us. If people want to find out more about your work, Kevin, what would they do?
2: Uh, They could visit our website, which is thewordinc.org, T-H-E-W-O-R-D-I-N-C, Dot O-R-G, or they could call us toll-free 888-840-WORD, which is 888-840-9673, and they can learn about these shows that we perform all over the country, comedies, dramas, all kinds of things to entertain people and at the same time uh, evangelize and bring them closer to our Lord.
0: And audience, if you forgot that connection, go to deepinscripture.com. There's a link right now to connect to all that Kevin's doing. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks,
2: Marcus. It was a real
0: treat. And I look forward to being with you in a month or so when I interview, who am I interviewing again?
2: Dominic Barbary. You don't have to know a thing about him. I'll just show up and we'll wing it. No script, Marcus, okay? We're just going to wing it. <laughs> that sounds great.
0: Okay. All right. We'll see you then. All right. All of you, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. I pray that this was uh, an encouragement to you. You know, we walk this journey together, just as we've read there. We do some planting. We do some uh, plant, uh, watering, but you and I, We'll open ourselves to the work of God's grace so that we can be a reservoir of the message to others. God bless you. See you next week.